0: You cannot carry out fundamental change without a certain amount of madness. In this case, it comes from nonconformity. The courage to turn your back on the old formulas, the
1: courage to invent the future.
0: La révolution est victoire. L'échec appartient à la réaction et à la contre-révolution. Hello, this is Event the Future, the Marxist-Leninist podcast discussing history, theory, culture, and organizing. I am this month's host, alex and we're glad to be back. Who else is here? Hey, this is Alex.
2: I am also glad to be back this is savannah i'm i'm feeling okay about being back you know it's fine
0: <laughs> this is jules she hurt it's my first time here and i'm glad to be here and we are so happy to have you here excellent so um tonight we will be talking about capitalism and conservation um we have this wonderful guest jules as she has introduced herself earlier and yeah i'm super excited um Before we even uh, started recording... Jules asked if we have any informa- or any prior knowledge of this, and for me personally, I'm kind of new to this side of, I guess, theory and history and science and stuff, so I'm very excited to hear uh, Jules' thoughts and very excited to learn stuff and have a conversation. So yeah, um, I was going to quickly ask Jules, how did you start doing this? What's kind of your background in conservation and capitalism and... Kind of what drove you to this fields and subfields and stuff?
1: So my background in conservation science is storied and long. Um, I guess the first project I did in conservation science was in high school, working on finding a suitable location on the island I lived on in Washington State to build low-income housing. Um, the income of the island is, as compared to most places in the U.S., fairly high. And we faced a lot of NIMBY issues, uh, not in my backyard, where residents of the island didn't want any, any of the pristine, quote-unquote, parts of the island to be used for low-income housing. Uh, so trying to search through old conservation um, archives to find a place that we could use. And then I decided to major in environmental science in my undergrad. My biggest conservationist project was working on the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Uh, which is running through the uh, city that my university was in, Roanoke, Virginia. And I guess the culmination of it was mostly doing an economic impact uh, study on how much, how many jobs purported by uh, Dominion Energy, the, the uh, sponsor of the pipeline, uh, that the pipeline would bring to the region, and contrasting that with the loss of capital due to the degradation of the environment around the pipeline, um, basically the clear-cut area that needs to be done around the pipeline, uh, looking at that and how much you know water purification, air purification would be lost by losing that swath of forest, and also looking at how much property values in that area would go down. And I got very frustrated with that project because conservation science bases itself in inherent value. And a lot of it, a lot of the work was just property owners saying, no, my property value would go down because it's ugly and I don't want to see a pipeline. And a lot less of it was focused on uh, the actual value of the environment in an untouched environment and an unfragmented environment. So the focus really started when I started doing uh, research for to prepare for my master's. I'm going to start a master's in epidemiology in the fall. And looking at bat conservation, a lot of epidemiologists have written op ed pieces in defense of bat conservation just because well, they've been kind of demonized, especially since the pandemic um but a lot of the op ed pieces focus on bats' role as pollinators and how much economic stimulation they provide due to that that particular role and how bat conservation is necessary in order to prevent further pandemics and the economic impacts of further pandemics. Um, And just the educational value alone of conserving bat species and the educational value of understanding the role that they play in pandemics was not highlighted. And I ended up getting very frustrated with that as well and wanted to do a deeper dive into how and why animals or species or populations or entire ecosystems are valued and as a leftist myself, I wanted to take a anti-capitalist approach, I guess, and try and apply theory to that, and just in, in my own personal way to understand it and work through those frustrations that I had. Uh, so that's that was pretty much the path towards deciding to look into this issue and study this issue.
0: Very nice. Excellent. Yeah, then I guess that kind of not only shows your time and the energy and labor that you put into this, but it shows kind of your expertise as well. So I would love for you to pretty much give us some um, information as to not only educate those who are also um, doing this podcast, but also the audience as well.
1: So conservation science is a relatively new science. It hasn't been, you know, ancient with medical science or philosophy, uh, it's something that was only recently introduced as we started to realize, oh my God, we have an impact on the world around us. So there's five main principles of conservation, I guess, that are formally recognized. Uh, the first is that biological diversity has intrinsic value. Uh, the second, uh, the untimely extinction of populations and species should be prevented. The third, is that the diversity of species and the complexity of biological communities should be preserved. The fourth Science plays a critical role in our understanding ecosystems. And five, collaboration among scientists, managers, and policymakers is necessary. Now, some of these I feel are, in theory, they work. In theory, they're fantastic. Uh, you would want them to be applied, but in practice, they've been almost completely lost due to capitalism's impact on modern conservation. And when I say modern conservation, I'm talking mostly about the dominant strains of conservationist thought. Uh what's mostly represented by bingos, aka big NGOs, um, you know, World Wildlife Federation, uh Red Cross has its has its toes dipped in conservation, um any of the big ones you can really be thinking about. Even not GEO has NGO uh NGO ties to conservation, uh, not surprising. And then some other qualms of have have been between the relationship between uh, the critical role that science plays and the "quote unquote" necessary role of policymakers. Um, a lot of times, I've had, or I've had to present to policymakers and talk about conservation, and they're not—they're not there to listen to me wax poetic about how much a tree means to me. Uh, they're really there to see how they can economically justify conservationist movements to their constituents. And in that way, a lot of the principles of conservation are upheld in the research. And then what is done with the research, they're, they're completely lost. So that's really the, uh, the dynamic that I want to be talking about today. But conservation science has a very long and storied history that mostly begins with rich people with a lot of land that they want to protect, uh, hiring people to protect it. And in the U.S., formal conservation began with dam building and wall building. Um, The creation of national parks uh, was usually considered to be the formal beginning of conservation. And in early conservation sciences, uh, the real debate was whether or not the land should be used for, or the land should be, the consideration of the protection of land should be because of its inherent value or its recreational and economic value, a.k.a. should this land be considered, quote-unquote, pristine, untouched? Do we leave it alone? Or do we build trails on it? Do we build dams on it? Do we allow people to, you know, go have a picnic on it? Um, Should the land be for people, or should the land exist as an end into itself? And a lot of times, species conservation uh, began with species that were game species, or had ornaments like horns, tusks, uh, that were valuable. And the money poured into conservation was less so conserving the species in the wild and began more in the form of zoos, in which those species were bred in captivity and then re-released to be hunted for game sport and entertainment by the people who had the time and money to do that. So there's there's a quick history of conservation, um, and as it's moved today into more of a uh, as we can see in the U.S., obviously, the strain of conservation is thought that valued land for its recreational value and economic value absolutely won out. And around the world, conservation still uh, focuses on uh, sort of like keystone species, large charismatic species that people can uh, look at and decide, oh, that's cuddly. Oh, I've seen that in a TV show. I know an animated cartoon character that's that animal. So it needs to stay.
2: I wanted to ask you a question about your role in like policymaking and sort of lobbying or speaking with um policymakers. Were you doing that mainly through testimonials or were you speaking more one on one with policymakers about um conservation?
1: So a lot of my experience with policymakers has been through research projects. Um and I'm usually the one directly presenting, so I guess it's not exactly one-on-one. I'm usually working in a group, but I am presenting face-to-face and not, not usually you know, submitting any written documents. Um, but most of my experience has been speaking to regional commissions or I guess most recently with the uh, pipeline project. It was with a state representative of Virginia and that was over Zoom. It was recently, I think, uh, last last spring, last May, actually, almost a year now. And also very recently in in October, that same representative was the the deciding vote to have the pipeline be shut down. Uh, it was decided that building building couldn't continue, and another offshoot of the pipeline was completely abandoned uh, by Dominion Energy. Um, so a lot of that experience actually has very tangible results which I do feel proud of but I also I'm not I'm not a big fan of the way I've had to go about it and and justifying that but a lot of my experience has been just working with policymakers uh a lot of whom also don't have any background in conservation of science and don't understand what goes into those decisions really all they're given is <laughs> mostly lobbying by um Energy companies like Dominion Energy saying, here's how many jobs we'll bring to the region. Um, We'll build housing for the people we're hiring for those jobs. We will hire, we promise to hire this percent of our employees from within the region. And if they vote against those, those measures, if they try and do anything to stop things like a pipeline project, they get smeared for not caring about their constituents. And a lot of them just don't have the experience with conservation to be able to say, actually, this is what this is the damage that'll be done to the region. Um, this is the damage that'll be done to people already in the region. Uh, these jobs won't last at all. These jobs are temporary, and they don't actually provide any career advancement or uh, long-term help or structure for people who are unemployed. Um, In my region, and to be able to justify that, uh, especially to constituents, is really the role of conservationists. Giving policymakers the tools to say, um, "Actually, here's the damage that'll be done. Ignore the smear campaigns. Here's what I'm doing for you," and you you just hope that they listen. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad that
2: um, those conversations and and presentations to policymakers has had um, a tangible result in your area. I worked doing healthcare lobbying for um, nonprofits for a year, and um, those conversations with policymakers can be exceptionally frustrating. And um, the way that you have to go about justifying, like helping people, um, for sure, lands on the numbers and economic impact.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of the previous uh, research projects I did was on. Workforce development in the Roanoke region, which is meant to be more broadly applied to um smaller cities in appalachia uh and especially looking at that um trying to understand exactly why uh people are leaving Appalachia, especially small cities, young professionals are leaving small cities in Appalachia at such prodigious rates um and one of the one of the uh, solutions that the regional commission had proposed to that was add more green space um add more biking trails and what one thing we really had to tell them was that bringing more outsiders into the region isn't going to help more people stay yeah it's a it's a struggle to it's a struggle to have have policymakers listen to you for sure especially especially during an undergraduate career uh i'm thankful to be able to move forward in that and hopefully gain some credibility um But it's definitely a struggle in the beginning, Uh, even when you're working, even when they're paying you. They don't want to listen to what you have to say. For sure. Yeah.
0: And as you were talking, I was thinking of like the tourism industry and how that um, impacts not only just the local um, area and the people that live there in the community, but also on a grander scale um, you're having airlines you're having pretty much selling the land selling the land selling the people's pretty much saying like oh this is a really nice place you should visit it have you noticed this kind of correlation with tourism um, and with conservation and kind of this if it's an issue or how you see it possibly working within your uh, studies and stuff like that
1: oh god yeah god yeah ecotourism is touted as the solution to so many conservationist issues that it it simply can't fix. One of the case studies I was looking at was trying to put forth uh, whale watching as a solution to uh, economically distressed indigenous communities who previously relied on whale hunting um, for sustenance, who, after whale hunting was banned, were struggling to have reliable food sources um, and I guess more so, uh, not only available food food sources, but um, cheap enough food sources to actually sustain that community. Um, and the solution was supported <laughs> by conservationist NGOs was we will set up for you uh, paid whale watching tours. And the question was really, does, does that help? Uh, it, it really ignores the environmental impact of getting people to this area the environmental impact that whale-watching boats will have. Um, a lot of the boats sonar equipment that they're trying to use to find whales, so that way they can actually get these tourists to see these whales uh, disrupts echolocation and ends up disrupting pod communication and migratory patterns, um, which will eventually drive whales out of that region. Uh, most whale species have, have some sort of matriarch uh, they're one of the only other species in which non-menstruating females actually uh live past their age of age of fecundity. So females who can't give birth are still alive just because they are sort of the caretakers of these historic migratory routes. And if it's found that those routes are no longer working for them, especially a lot of uh commercial routes have uh disrupted whale migratory patterns, they won't they won't bring young there anymore. They won't bring younger generations there anymore. And that solution, in the end, in the long term, will only drive whales away from away from that region. So not only are you providing a incomplete solution to the problem, but you're exacerbating it. And there's just this this steadfast belief that ecotourism is the solution to conservation. But a lot of the issues with conservation is that we are having residential sprawl into areas that cannot take that strain and creating new hotels, new resorts, new places for tourists to stay just because they might have a trickle of money into into that region um, isn't, isn't going to be a long-term viable solution. Uh, and forcing a lot of communities to rely on the economic input of tourism rather than creating self-sustaining Uh, economic systems for them that they have control over, that they control the means of, is honestly just such an incomplete solution to to those issues. Um, And a lot of it, honestly, leads to animal abuse, like a lot of ecotourism into uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, even like Southern Africa relies on them especially elephant tourism. That's a big thing. Uh, people won't see the elephants. They're not content just seeing them. They want to ride them. They've seen people riding elephants and they will pay to be on those elephants. And a lot of it uh, happens in communities in which people have have struggled and struggled and struggled to find any other uh, source of economic freedom, I guess is the best way I can put it, uh, to the point where elephant riding is is a, is a very lucrative way to make money but it is it is hell on the elephant um and it causes so much stress that the elephants won't breathe and you end up with again rapidly rapidly declining elephant populations and bringing people closer to especially especially megafauna that can possibly be be dangerous is, uh leads to negative interactions between people and megafauna elephant steps the wrong way hurts someone and suddenly you lose a lot of support for elephant conservation. Those are just two examples, but it happens over and over and over again, that cycle of ecotourism um, as the source of funding for conservation of projects for certain ecosystems, certain species, to the point where the ecotourism is actually hurting the species, hurting the community, the population, the ecosystem. But if that if that source of funding is removed... Then there aren't any other actual uh, sustainable conservationist projects being done to keep any sort of conservation continuing in in that region so yeah that's that's definitely a massive issue and I think something else that comes along with that is uh commodity fetishism, which is, wherein you are sold the ecosystem itself as a commodity it's something that's there for you to consume. I'm sure you've ever walked through an airport, you see, you know, a television advertisement, whatever, Sandals Resorts um, to go to the Caribbean. And you're, what you're being sold really isn't, it isn't a trip, it isn't a hotel, it's its an experience. You're being sold an experience of being in this ecosystem uh, that is out of your norm. And it's really just commodifying your relationship with it. Being able to say, this is exotic for me, I am here. Uh, You want to go on a turtle tour? You want to see the sea turtles? Please put in $5 for sea turtle conservation. And you get to take on the role of the savior. So I think it's it's just the application of not only ecotourism being harmful, but also the harm that comes from putting a price or a value on an experience between yourself and the natural world. And again, that leads into into alienation, the absolute alienation between a person and an ecosystem.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy that a luxurious experience, like a luxury, um, has been identified as like the way to save the world. Like, go ride these elephants or swim with dolphins or like do these like practice these harmful like luxuries um, in you're right like a natural world and that's going to save the environment
3: this really reminds me of i mean it nicely ties into what we've talked about before with us expansionism and stuff like that where they and colonization where they viewed the land as oh something that white settlers needed to act on Uh, in a specific manner um, and also seen as something that they could take. And we've talked about how they disparaged the indigenous peoples of the land for not using it in a quote unquote productive way, the land. And I see this active kind of subjectivity within the relationship between the land and the consumer as being played out again in another role of the the person who knows what's best by conflating that tourism with kind of the savior and so i feel like this just nicely goes within that historical line of how they viewed the land and the resources around them and their i don't know almost like their what's the word when you feel like you're uh you're deserving of something, or you know, you um, are entitled to it. So, yeah, that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of uh, belief that land that land is is yours to be used. The book I'm like, I guess, heavily pulling on, uh, "Capitalism and Conservation," is uh, b- edited by Brockington and Duffy, but it opens with a quote from a hedge fund manager, Stanley Fink, as he's speaking to Prince Charles in the financial district in London. And uh, he's really talking, he's talking about rainforest conservation. And the entire event was meant to communicate the work of the Rainforest Project, uh, which was a collaboration between royals and hedge fund managers to, you know, what they say is support rainforest conservation and what they mean is colonize rainforests. And they really they say that conservation is quote unquote their field of expertise. Um, I like think the exact quote uh, by Stanley Fink is, uh, "What the people of rainforest nations need is a system that values the services locked up in their land. The rainforests are at the very center of these countries' identities. They seek to perceive them, uh, preserve them, even as they struggle against them. So capitalism at the center of our identity." We must be bold enough to see the world at its widest, even as we struggle in our own way. To seize this $18 business opportunity, valuing the services of rainforest will not only require innovation and market-based mechanisms, but also unprecedented global cooperation, uh, and so on and so forth. But really, there is this idea of entitlement that if you're not putting a monetary value on land, then you're using it wrong. If you're not valuing the land that you have, then you're just ignorant. Just the idea that people who, especially, like I guess, when they say rainforest nations, the people of rainforest nations, what they're talking about is mostly um, Indigenous people. And the idea that they, they're just living on the land, uh, they're not selling it, is is shocking to the very heart of, of this capitalist core of London. And understanding that, I guess to quote, that the services, quote unquote, locked up in their land as if assigning a monetary value to it, you're somehow unlocking it, freeing it, liberating it, just assigning some some quality to it that it didn't have before, that, you know, it's not as valuable unless, <laughs> unless you're selling it in some way.
3: Yeah, I hate that so much. <laughs> Even yes, as just, you know, out, taking me outside of the person who's very anti-capitalist as it is, and just from a standpoint of being able to, I don't know, remove yourself from money and greed and stuff like that—it's just absolutely disgusting. Um, and it just shows how it's—it's it's such a, a a toxic, like, th- ideological root that just takes over someone's whole point of view and how they view the world as as just products and and ways to make money. Um, and it really makes me think of how. A lot of things around education and sharing knowledge, even natural sciences and stuff like that, often become ways to uh, gain capital for companies or or institutions, you know, where at one point it might have been to actually share that natural desire to learn. A lot of these things end up becoming just ways to make more money and, you know. Uh, make some already rich person probably more wealthy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that that we spoke about in my conservation class, it was like purported as a bastion of conservation but um, Kew Gardens in London, it is beautiful. It is gorgeous. Uh, they do currently do a lot of work in conservation um, and especially just botany and uh, primary producer conservation but The original purpose of Kew Gardens was to try and find species that they could eradicate in their, I guess, uh, natural range and resell back to countries, as well as trying to find uh, better lumber (laughs) from colonized countries, countries colonized by England, in which they could build more settlements in those countries just by testing out different trees, different hybrids back in England. And just seeing Jesus so many boxes Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a history that's obfuscated very, very insidiously, I would say. A lot of gardens actually started that way. To think that uh, the special special gardens are, um, I guess, what do you call them? Botanical gardens. Yeah, started as simply a place to grow flowers is unfortunately incorrect, I wish. Uh, but usually they started as a capitalist venture, Um and often, a deeply imperialist venture,
0: I honestly did not know that, but that makes a lot of sense,
1: sadly, yeah, God, um a lot of my experiences, even learning this, even uh introductions to global perceptions of capitalism came when i was when I was living in South Africa, and I was going to University of Cape Town, and University of Cape Town was doing a a university wide study trying to figure out why more more black and specifically um african diaspora students uh weren't engaging in natural sciences why they weren't going into life sciences but were instead um choosing engineering degrees business degrees and i guess the the most obvious answer is mostly that uh economic freedom and uh, um Students are trying to find jobs that will bring them economic freedom, but the more qualitative answer to that, which uh you can you can read read if you're um looking at the actual interviews uh is that students don't feel representative they are represented in the natural sciences they feel like they're just entering another science in which their lives have been devalued, their homes have been devalued and not devalued by only just like ravage in pursuit of capital gain just even just like (laughs) the constant, constant devaluing of that land by the dumping of toxic waste, the uh, depletion of the land through like Western agricultural projects, but that the idea that their land must have some economic value, that that just completely negates their own cultural values and they feel as if they can't reconcile those two things. Geez, well I don't friggin' blame them. <laughs> yeah, South Africa South Africa was originally colonized specifically to plant to plant orange trees, uh, because sailors kept they just kept getting scurvy trying to get, <laughs> trying to get to the Indies. Um and so South Africa was colonized as a place for um obviously it's colonized with so the the idea of, you know, untouched land, pristine land, um empty land. Uh, ignoring the fact that there were South Africans there to plant citrus trees so sailors wouldn't get scurvy, and from there the uh, European colonizers, specifically Boer colonizers, discovered the Cape floristic region, one of the most diverse floristic regions in the world. Just the the um, Cape floristic region in South Africa—it's—if it's, you look at a map, it's contained to such a small area, but it has more, more botanical diversity than the entirety of Europe. And immediately, immediately that was exploited. So that's something very near and dear to the hearts of South African students in Cape Town. And the, the idea that that study had to be had to be done and interview students to, and without without any any form of critical thought. Um, it's kind of funny. It's a little funny, but it's also it's also deeply painful to think about.
3: Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And I just think of how much that's probably glazed over in understanding the dynamics between people. Uh, It's really interesting to think of how a land's history is just as much as part of a people as other aspects of culture. And I think it's important to acknowledge that for people who are indigenous to certain lands.
0: Yeah, definitely. This conversation also reminds me of, as you were mentioning, Jules, with the empty land and as Alex was talking about um, with colonization of the Americas, even within the westward bound of um, the United States, you got pictures of this like bountiful land that was unclaimed, untouched, and it had a bunch of um, beautiful scenery with the mountains and you have trees, you have everything. Everything looks so pretty much ripe for people to, or men to come and colonize, um, specifically white men, obviously to colonize and take over what they can. And it's very interesting to see this kind of progression of it's still existing, but within the advertisements um, that we see with the Caribbean, Jamaica, um, Hawaii, um, and places like that, just um, it's constantly seen as this kind of paradise where you can enact your almost like the white savior, as you were mentioning, Jules, but also this kind of like you can conquer this land too. Like it's yours to kind of occupy. It doesn't matter if there's people there that have to reap the consequences. It's your kind of paradise away from the hellscape that you have to experience at home. So it's very interesting.
2: Yeah,
3: it's really gross too, when you consider the dynamics of if a place is quote unquote, called a third world country. Uh, I know the town that my mom was born is a very beautiful beach town in Vietnam. And that's slowly starting to see an influx of tourism. And you know that there's an extra layer of maybe unspoken, probably spoken amongst some Westerners, that discourse of histories of, hey, we're white Americans. We can go to this land of people who are underdeveloped and look at this beautiful land. They don't know how to use it right. Uh, We'll come and take what we want. Who cares if, you know, Uh, They have their own culture because it's looked down upon. It's seen as inferior. And also there's that whole dynamic between like uh, coming to a land, experiencing it, being disrespectful, not only to the land, but also to the people. And also there are so many gross parallels between like land, sexual conquest, and just being completely wasteful and uh, disturbing the peace of that sociocultural and uh, ecological um, system. So it's really interesting.
2: Yeah, there's so much vilification of indigenous communities in the various like ecotourism topics we've discussed, like the whale watching, what um, Fink said about the rainforest, and um, yeah, just the idea that indigenous communities don't know how to use the land productively um, like Western capitalists do. So it's it's just rife with white saviorism and, um, I mean, genocidal intentions, ultimately.
1: Yeah, and a lot of it still still exists. I mean, even in the U.S., even in the West, a lot of advertisements, I guess, for places like Yellowstone will, will give you this whole, you know, brave the wilderness, be that savior type of deal. A lot of really dark photographs or, you know, paintings of rising rocks and you know endless expanses and just that idea that you are the one conquering it that you're the one having it I think you can even have like they'll give you like hunting experiments like they'll call it like nomad experiences but really what you're doing is pretending you're Native American and like like you're not benefiting from the laws of that lifestyle and that just that sort of thought that you are conquering this land is is indeed quite gross
2: I was having that conversation with my partner this morning about um, mountain biking parks in Colorado so when the ski resorts um, are like the season's over because it's not snowy anymore, uh, many of them turn um, trails and slopes into mountain biking parks and it's just this lar- these large swaths of land that like should not be owned by rich white people who like other white people are paying so that they can use the land to have this like adrenaline rush, completely in nature excursion. And it's, it's just awful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Especially in, um, I just moved to Denver. I've been living in Denver for a bit and Colorado mountain towns have most recently have like almost no actual like full-time residents, a lot of the residential like buildings in those areas are just people's third home or people's, you know, winter cabin or summer escape in which they use it to go experience the wilderness from a place like downtown Denver where they might have, you know, a tech job or anything that that keeps them in the city. They they go out and experience, you know, quote unquote wilderness, I guess, of Colorado as a luxury and there aren't, there aren't people actually just living there, just living their lives there. Uh, it's a place to purvey. It's a site of voyeurism instead of, you know, a site of actual actual living.
4: I'm a thousand unspoiled places waiting here for you to find
1: a lifetime memory painted in your mind. I'm Colorado. And I'll show you what it's like to be truly alive. I don't know. In Denver, in particular, there's a lot of a lot of interesting perspectives on conservation. I think I saw it play out. I think when I when I just moved here, it was um, right before the vote on wolf conservation uh, and whether or not whether or not Colorado would get would get its wolves back. And if you actually look at like the demographics of the vote. Uh, The people most in support of wolf conservation are people in urban areas and people with a college education. Um, And people who have formerly worked in agriculture, people in more rural areas are more likely to be more opposed to wolf reintroduction. And the same was true during the uh, Yellowstone wolf introductions um, in Montana and Idaho and such, uh, just because there's this economic reliance on specifically agriculture and livestock and the idea that wolves might be a threat to it uh creates very antagonistic views towards that but for people in downtown areas where they don't really have to deal deal with that that possibility and have perhaps any sort of education on the impacts of wolf reintroduction would be supportive um so call, the vote for Colorado was a statewide vote uh Denver was a hard hitter and we eventually we we decided to get our wolves back but there was so much so much antagonism uh, to that perspective from rural communities uh, who actually had to deal with the consequences. And while r- wolf reintroduction is a good thing, it's also worth noting that a lot of those rural communities uh, were settled. Um, they're remnants of colonization. And the fact that wolves are gone in the first place was part of the, uh, the manifest destiny dream that this is our land. And even the idea that, you know, you sometimes you somehow have ownership over this land and because you work on it not only just work on it but because you colonized it, claimed it and work on it that you get to decide what is best for it. So I think ownership that last tenet of conservation, the idea that land managers should have an integral role in conservation is is I think completely antithetical to the force that science should have this critical role. Because often land managers are not scientists; they can hire scientists, they can you know do a literature review if they if they so choose. but when it comes down to it, it's private ownership that dictates the the consequences of of actions, and it's private ownership that is the final decider in what happens to land, and science ends up just not playing not playing a very very big role in it, and conservation on on you know large scale uh, often is is federal policy, and large protected areas are federally owned and obviously the government has so many so many divisions of scientists that are that are dedicated to that, but even federally owned land, scientists have limitations on what they can research, and what they recommend often isn't isn't the the final course of action just because surrounding landowners or people industrial industrial operations that rely on on a um functioning water table um that they can draw from more more so than than they should that that, that honestly that they're depleting it very very much relies on uh regulations working in their favor. So I hate that.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> that was all.
2: <laughs> Fair sure. Yeah, it's, I know. It, it's awful that like land is bought, it's collected, and then the decisions about how it functions is really just um, dependent on how much money it can make. That that organization or company that owns the land, um, to use a nonprofit example, I work for an organization that benefits off of the land that they own being pretty and because they own large expanses of land that means lawns just like a bunch of grass and we live in an arid desert having a bunch of grass is like not good it's not water wise it's not very like efficient like we could just have better plants more healthy plants native plants but because it needs to be lush It needs to be inviting in the way that like because it caters to rich white people it needs to be inviting in the way that rich white people want.
1: Yeah absolutely. Image is, image is a large part of conservation and honestly that's super unfortunate because people are very often sold these very pristine images of what a healthy environment should look like and often they're, they're very incorrect. It's this, this use of, um, yeah, a philosophy of aesthetics and form. And, but, uh, I guess putting into theory it would be spectacle very specifically defining spectacle, I guess, in, in the Marxist way. Um, spectacle is like a development and application of the, uh, set of, like commodity fetishism, reification, alienation, um, or like in spectacle, uh, commodities that rule the workers and consumers, instead of being ruled by them, they're passive subjects that contemplate a reified spectacle. And so in its, in its most, I guess, simplified version, it would be just mass media, um, superficial manifestations of our conception of a, a healthy environment. And a lot of times that is things like documentaries, Planet Earth, Blue Planet, anything you can watch on Discovery, History Channel, Geo Wild. Um, A lot of these very, very curated views of what a healthy environment should look like, and a lot of the times that's not it. You go into something so integral for water purification or air purification or um, even just like hosts of juvenile stages of so many important species, uh, an environment like mangroves. In which we are sold this beautiful image of, you know, a camera dipping into the water and you see all the roots and all the fish, when in reality, that is not what it should look like. You should not be able to see any of that. It should be murky. Uh, There should be a good amount of algae, but that's not what, that's not what, you know, snorkelers want. That isn't something you can, you can sell in a commercial or in a brochure. So it ends up being, uh, health is thrown out in favor of aesthetics uh, very, very often in in conservationist projects, which is so incredibly unfortunate. Even working on the pipeline a lot of the the arguments I had to do was um that from this specific viewpoint a pipeline will be ugly. I had to do like computer modeling simulations of what it would look like with a pipeline and distribute those images in town halls. I mean it gets the job done. It's it's the dirty work that, you know, has to be done to stop that pipeline, but God I wish it wasn't.
2: When you're working against capital when you're working against these large enterprises it's amazing the amount of work that people have to do to show that like this is a bad decision like you had to do computer models and all this research when like everyone knows that a pipeline is a it's a bad thing for the environment why do i have to do all this work and like other organizations do all this work to convince you of that it's very frustrating
1: yeah god um especially a lot of the work I did was in Appalachian studies. So that's a, a, an especially for an issue in Appalachia where you have to convince people <laughs> that any possible influx of jobs into a region, which is just so full of underemployed people actually isn't beneficial. <laughs> uh, it's it's quite a struggle. Um, and uh, I know, I think it was, was Ilex, it you said you had, experiences in ecofeminism and one of the one of the things one of the questions i had that i did some work on was why women lead so many conservationist movements in appalachia and um, i got a chance to interview dr emily satterwhite uh absolutely lovely um environmental studies professor at virginia tech in Blacksburg, virginia uh quite famous for chaining herself to the mountain valley pipeline got in a lot of trouble with virginia tech for it almost lost her job but yeah, quite, quite a brave action. I, I, she was, she was an idol. I was so glad I got to talk to her. Okay. Savannah, but uh, Savannah has a nice experience in eco-feminism, but a lot of the reasons for that uh, was because coal was just so prevalent in the area that any, any uh, critique of, especially the um, things like mountaintop removal, any, any techniques used by coal companies to extract uh, coal couldn't be done by its workers but they sure felt the effect so it was done by their wives oh god i'm thinking of one very specific book it was like roots as strong as iron weed like Ironweed um explores the uh history of uh, feminist environmental activism in appalachia and the way that conservationist thought has just been dominated and inextricably entangled with feminist thought um that women are just have just historically been the stewards of the land while while there's this more masculine force, I guess, quote-unquote, degrading it. Yeah.
2: My foundation in ecofeminism is very basic, but definitely, I mean, environmental catastrophe is going to hit the most marginalized folks um, the hardest. And so when you think about, like, feminist struggles and anti-capitalist struggles, and um, they, like, often um, tie into struggles for a safer environment um
1: for sure yeah absolutely yeah a lot of that does go hand in hand just for women who had to worry about the future of their kids uh it it was less even about like trying to protect the land for them but they were also the one doing the ones doing the child care and the ones who had to had to try and build a better world for those kids and so a lot of that work fell onto the women god yeah i think the uh even just like conservationist thought and movements in, in the U S really began with Rachel Carson, Rachel Carson being the author of uh silent spring, very, very iconic book um, that spoke about it mainly focused on the loss of bird species, hence the term silent, just the, the loss of bird calls in the forest. That was just such a, such a noticeable extinction uh, for people in, in her region. She grew up in like the Allegheny region of Pennsylvania and just talking about how how that specifically impacted her and what she could do about that. Big shout out to Rachel Carson for being a lesbian who went to women's college. I guess a lot of her work was written off because of that. But women have always historically been at the front of conservationist movements. It was Rachel, Car- Rachel Carson who really fought for the um, Clean Air and Clean Water Act in the U.S. And even a lot of that policy has been championed. By women mainly just because there's this concept of like very maternal stewardship and of course that 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 leads to a a whole different conversation on uh on gender roles that 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 could be an entire episode in itself but um i guess historically in the 60s when when that movement really transferred from the creation of national parks to federal policy that that impacted private companies it had to be done by women
0: Yeah, that's really true. Not to change the conversation, but I really wanted to ask you about um, in the later part of your YouTube video, which we'll have in the description box, in the video, you mentioned that um, there's both, obviously we know within this even In this conversation, um, the ruling class are mostly causing, like, harm. Their corporations are polluting and stuff like that. But there's also an individual kind of responsibility. And I know right now there's kind of this wave of people saying, well, there's no morality within capitalism. So, you know, like you have to just take it as is. But I still, um, as you mentioned, your your YouTube video that there's still an obligation we have. So I didn't know if you wanted to speak on that. Any recommendations for people? I know people get kind of anxious about this kind of conversation because it's like, what can I do to help even though I don't feel like I can because I'm just a person. But even organizations, but even as a person, what can we all do to kind of help out and stuff?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I struggle with this too, I struggle with this too. I feel like I feel like such a hypocrite even talking about it just because I, I do wholeheartedly believe that the focus should be on corporations and the focus should be on structures that reinforce the ideas that we as individuals have the power to, to conserve the world if only we would just, you know, stop being so greedy. If only we didn't, you know, eat quinoa or whatever. Whatever whatever point of the week people want to bring up that that we can do better, uh switching from almond milk to oat milk. But I do think I do think there is some some amount of personal complacency in that. Uh I think, I think what I said is was I'm was verging on Kaczynski territory. Um <laughs> but I guess what I'm not advocating for is for people to feel guilty for not going completely off the grid or, you know, feel guilty for having an iPhone or whatever. What I'm advocating for is for people to not think that there is, to think that because they have no possibility of ethical consumption, that consumption shouldn't be criticized. I guess it's the basis of that. And making sure that people aren't falling into the trap of assigning this living quality of Ethicality to to what they consume, especially uh, as relating to um, environmentalism. Mm-hmm. That labeling this product as environmentally friendly and labeling you know this product as not really obscures the it focus on focuses on the product itself and the consumption itself without thinking about the actual methods of production. Like in the way that you could assign you know a, a mug that says save the earth to you could say that that's an environmentalist mug but is it really who is it being produced by where is it being sold Uh, what method what methods of transportation did it take to get to you you know where did the where did the chemicals that went into the ink come from Um, there's just so much more that goes into it but thinking that you can consume environmentalist products and that's a solution is, I guess, really what I what I wanted to get away from in terms of personal action. It's like a very specific, it's, it's something that's absolutely pushed. Like, I guess there's a lot of studies coming out about the way ExxonMobil has pushed uh, the idea of fossil fuel, the negative impacts of fossil fuel into an issue of personal consumption instead of an issue of ExxonMobil is, you know very unsustainably extracting fossil fuels from the earth and that the solution to that being, you know, something like hybrid cars. I think this is brought up in the video. If any of you watch my YouTube video, it's just me talking. It's a little stiff. It's a little awkward, but um, it does get into the basics of, of, of this question, which is that the idea that I want people to really get away from the idea that the consumption of another product is the solution to an issue caused by Excessive or unsustainable consumption, and it's very, it's very much something that's, that that conservationists are aware of and used to push. Like there's um, in the essay by Sachadina, it's called "Disconnected Nature: Scaling Up of African Wildlife Foundations' Impacts on Biodiversity Conservation and Local Livelihoods." He opens uh, with a quote from Russell Mittermeyer, um, and it, it, the quote is, "One of the things I'm a real believer in is what I call T-shirt diplomacy." you produce t-shirts focusing on a certain key flagship species then you distribute them widely uh, widely in the communities immediately adjacent to the protected area and when people are wearing a shirt about a particular species they start thinking about it t-shirt diplomacy is one of the best tools for conservation education like this idea that the um, pushing some sort of consumption or you know having some item with the picture of a threatened species on it is making you an ally to that species is um really what I wanted to move away from and critiquing the structures that have caused the the decline of that species in the first place, or critiquing the structures that are trying to push this false relationship that you should have with, with the natural world. Um, and even thinking critically about why we are alienated from the natural world in the first place is the personal work that I would, that I would want people to do rather than rather than um I guess critiquing people for for consuming products that they may need or critiquing people for any sort of consumption in the first place, uh I understand the ways in which you know it becomes nearly impossible to live a you know zero carbon footprint life or zero water footprint life, and I guess seeing people who are like, "Yeah, I live in an earthship, <laughs> I have rigged a solar system." Uh, for all of my electricity and water like that's fantastic for you um (laughs) i'm really glad you're having a great time on that individual journey but i want to know what work you're what, what work you're doing to um try and stop or even try and bring awareness to the reasons why that water is being depleted in the first place the reasons you feel uncomfortable consuming you know public water sources and that requires less of an individual journey and, and more work with community organizing <laughs> and I guess um, more grassroots grassroots work to stop those larger systems rather than trying to find something to alleviate your personal guilt at your uh, place in them.
2: Yeah, it's so easy to get caught up in like, what can I do as an individual as I guess like an answer to like the nihilist perspective of I can't do anything so like why do anything but if you are trying to make like individual choices that are possibly more sustainable it's it's easy to get caught up in that and all the work that goes into that like is this company really producing something that is more sustainable than the alternative that I've been purchasing because of all the greenwashing like it's really hard to navigate what products are possibly better um, instead of investing in mass action instead of working with a group of people to make bigger changes. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's just a
3: clear oversight to like a class level oversight to only take that approach and not be using your resources if you have them to be pushing for system ch- uh, system change because You know, a lot of individuals, especially working class, poor people, can't afford these alternative options or to put the work into, like, getting alternative sources for energy and things like this. And I feel like it's become almost like a system where the people that have the time and the resources to do this kind of stuff, unless they are exceptionally, you know, like passionate and stuff like that is left for wealthier individuals. And it's kind of become a thing where, interestingly, because you weren't talking about the capitalist uh, connections to conservation, the people who do get kind of conflated with conservation and green energy and that kind of stuff are the wealthy people. And I, I almost wonder if that imagery gives the the wrong like makes it seem like it's not a true issue for everyone to be to take seriously or to find important if that makes sense and I'm wondering if I don't know it's just my brain isn't working with understanding how how that would work but it's just an observation that I've made if yeah, you all no. at all are understanding where I'm going with
1: this. No, no, I totally get what you're talking about. I guess just like that, I, like image of what an environmentalist should do or should be doing. I think if I'm interpreting that correctly, that the true way to be an environmentalist is like, you know, shut off those, those trappings of Western luxury, like, uh, I don't know, what what is it that people do? They buy a van, drive around, you know, have a smaller fridge. <laughs> Solar panels, things like that. But that is truly, truly what would make you an environmentalist. While the truth is, you know, a good majority of the world lives like that. The vast majority of the world <laughs> will still have a lower carbon footprint than you, um, and you aren't really in any in any tangible, long-term way making life better for those people with that <laughs> with that, I guess, negligible impact who. Feel the the most broad impacts of why we need conservation in the first place. Feel the most broad impacts of climate change or loss of species.
2: It's easy to be nihilistic and to become overwhelmed when you're like, the only way we can change these things if we like seize the means of production so that you know products are are not things that we need to survive are not produced in in unsustainable ways. It it does get really overwhelming.
1: Yeah. And I guess just the idea that that if people can do it, companies can do it, too. Um, and that gets us sort of into, like, greenwashing, how companies can decide to label themselves as environmentalists, label themselves as champions of conservation just because of, because of partnerships they have, because of, like, the small amount of money, the drop in the bucket of their profits that they put back into conservation. Um, this is my YouTube video. I get into it very lightly, but... One of the big case studies that's been done in greenwashing is uh, Nestle, and their absolutely incredible, incredible work that they've done to greenwash themselves. I guess just just partnering with so many, so many NGOs. Almost the entirety of like their their websites are just them talking about who they're partnered with, what projects they're funding. You know, you could buy a Nestle water bottle. Jesus Christ, you wouldn't even know it's a Nestle water bottle. They have so many, so many brands that they function under. You know, Poland Poland Springs or any of the other you know outdoorsy sounding names that they've decided to decided to use that it completely completely um, obscures the way the ways in which Nestle is contributing to um, the factors that that lead to that lead to the need for conservation in the first place like one statistic that absolutely blew my mind is that the water footprint to create a nestle bottle is seven times the amount of water that's actually in the bottle it would be uh it would be far more i guess beneficial to the to the to the goals of conservation if nestle just stopped making the water bottles like there's no way to greenwash yourself greenwash yourself or to to paint yourself as a conservationist organization when you know that that corporation is so so aware of that fact and the ways in which Nestle doesn't even doesn't even attempt to bring us back to like the effects on indigenous communities Nestle specifically targets indigenous communities uh, and water wells within Indigenous communities, just to skirt water regulation laws. There's, there's no attempt. There's, it's completely mask off. We'll do whatever we can to, you know, ignore <laughs> regulations put in place in, in pursuit of mm-hmm. conservation. And that's just one small example. So many, so many, so many companies do, do the exact same thing. Um, lumber companies talking about how ethically they source, source their wood while still, you know sourcing it out of out of depleted areas um i guess yeah another another case study i was i was looking at was um an essay on the coffee industry in papua new guinea uh talking about how you know this entire boom in the idea of ethically sourced coffee and how all of that the idea that you can ethically source (laughs) a product that that is growing outside of its native region that um is consumed so unsustainably i guess especially in in western culture that that product can be ethical while completely ignoring the production of it um like sure you can put like a face of a smiling worker on it but are you paying those people a living wage is that is that is the land actually you know being sustained is the soil being depleted none of none of those are are answered by like the label of you know ethicality or rainforest certified or or any of those things that that you're going to see on a bar of chocolate, you know, a bag of coffee. I think, yeah, it really is just like a mark of forgiveness, a mark of, yeah, we recognize what we're doing and, you know, we might think about trying to do something about it, but will we stop production? Of course not. Will we ramp down production? Of course not. What we're going to do is, you know, hide the means of production, obscure them and Slap a label of ethical onto, onto our product. And I think even just like being able to criticize those structures that you, you, you have to understand you're not consuming an ethical product. You're consuming a product that used a use structure to absolve itself. Unless you are, unless you are going and personally shaking the hands of every single person who planted the coffee beans, who picked them, um, who worked in the, in the production line that ground the coffee, the people who, who got it to you know an airport that that flew it to where you are? Unless you are personally knowing all those people, there's no way you can claim that you are absolutely sure you're consuming, yeah, you know, a quote unquote ethical product.
2: Um, On the topic of coffee, there's a coffee um, place in Denver actually, Corvus. That when they like when the baristas talk to you about the coffee, they say, oh, like we visited this plantation and like met the growers and everything and you're talking to someone who's making like just above minimum wage like making your latte who's been taught to like tell you we visited this thing like me included and it's it's crazy that like it, it makes it sound more ethical it makes it sound more palatable and of course like Corvus is in the gentrified areas of Denver it's like seven bucks for a cup of coffee
1: oh, I'm familiar with the uh, the Corvus drama oh god I think there's even more. I think there's even more about like something they put on a billboard. Corvus is apparently hated in Denver. <laughs> but yeah, Jesus Christ. I remember I was I was uh when I was in high school I was dating someone and they went down to Peru to film a like short documentary for a local coffee shop since when I was living living near Seattle. It was it was Pegasus coffee, went down to went down into the Andes <laughs> to do like a two week two week trekking trip through the Andes to film a small documentary on where they source their coffee so that way they could play it in their shop. And I remember just thinking, like, oh, my God, like, all the work it must have taken to get to the Andes. And like, similarly, like, in the Himalayas, people are begging people to stop climbing mountains, Jesus Christ, just because of the difficulty it is, in, in, in like environments like that, to you know, take with you what you left behind. That there was, <laughs> it was probably more of a more of environmental impact of getting them down to the Andes, trekking for two weeks through the Andes, and then getting them back to Seattle, than it would have been. Than it would have been to just just source their coffee somewhere else for like two weeks. I think there was, there was a some environmentalist convention happening, and they wanted to have it in time for that, but. Just just the amount of contradictions that exist within conservation science is, is so mind boggling. It's just so baffling. And when you scratch it on the surface, it, it seems okay. It seems like the perfect partnership for, you know, um corporations that are causing causing environmental degradation to sacrifice a little bit of their profit to towards towards healing that or even justifying it. But it's never going to be a sustainable system. It's never going to be sustainable for corporations to attempt to bandage up land that they've depleted, and I think, as we can witness with the the rising threat I can't even say rising threat, the continuing rampage of climate change that it might be great on a small scale, you know some capitalist venture might throw you know millions of dollars into an area into a species if if they want. As like a sponsor, but in the long term, the best thing that they can do is stop production. The best thing they can do is you know dissolve themselves, and and that's that's never going to happen. So it just leads to this this awful awful cycle of market solutions to market based problems. And yeah, I think I, I speak to this a little bit. The conservation provides this this area of apology for the the negative effects of capitalism things like monoculture and all the very visible ways in which the pursuit of capital gain absolutely and completely ignores um, any, any of the, uh, you know, recommendations of scientists. A lot of conservation and like agencies are just not only out of touch with the populations that they're attempting to conserve, the ecosystems that they're, that they're pouring money into conserving after they've, after they've depleted them um but they're just fully out of touch with the realities of the science and i absolutely refuse to believe that it's because they don't know they pay <laughs> they pay so much money in, in 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 consultations alone just scientists just saying you know hey, hey here's what you need to do um and then they pay so much money <laughs> uh, going into lawsuits uh, from agencies that say, "Hey, here's what scientists told you, and here's what you ignored." And very, very often, you know, I, I I struggle to find a single example in which this isn't the case. The profit turned from from the environmental degradation is just heavily outweighs any any fine that's going to be slapped on them for for violations <laughs> of of regulations. So there, there really is absolutely no incentive for for corporations to abide by environmental regulations or even consider conservation as you know a higher power than than their goals and you know capital gain.
2: Absolutely, and you can see that in like the the rhetoric of the colonization of these areas. Like we have to use it for production. Like it's our our destiny. It's to expand into these areas and to use it properly. Like it's that. That mentality is always going to be there. And for sure, philanthropy is never going to um, undo all of the harm that's done by the overproduction of like harmful plastics and oil and and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, But really, really, it just, oh, I'm sorry. It makes me so mad. But it comes down to asking people to believe that, that you have the solutions, asking people to believe that a capitalist system has the solutions, and in unfortunate conversations with, with capitalist classmates, capitalist professors who really espouse these values, espouse this as, as the only solution, you can really see that there's there's no, they feel as if there's no logical fallacy to corporations providing solutions to issues that they create and finding capitalist solutions to problems that, that are just inherent to the structures and goals of capitalism.
2: The marketplace created this issue, so can't we just fix it through
1: the marketplace? Can't we just fix it through capitalism? <laughs> that really is the argument. That really is the argument. Just that there's there's a possibility. Not, not even a possibility, but just this absolute certainty. The solution is the only one that's possible. Just that by trying, just that by working outside outside of you know a market that you're completely devaluing an ecosystem to the point where it doesn't even matter. It isn't valued at all. And if that ecosystem doesn't have a monetary value, then you know it's unhealthy. It's it's not worth anything. And an ecosystem that isn't worth anything within a capitalist system uh, will be forgotten. When in reality, <laughs> uh, leaving ecosystems that aren't aren't colonized by capitalism, aren't provided some some monetary value to to the devices of people who actually live on them, the people who rely on them, work on them, that's probably going to provide better better outcomes for the for the ecosystem than it will be if you if you provide a monetary value to it. Um but the idea that, that capitalists have that their area of expertise is is the the best not only solution, but the best way to utilize, the best way to manage land is not only so arrogant, but just incorrect,
2: I do have an example of like a, a modern company catastrophe where they like didn't the the company fought to face any fines and then only through like massive lawsuits um, did they have to face fines, and they're still like continuing like everything's normal, which is um DuPont in their disposal of the byproducts of making Teflon and the like impact that that had on the community where they were disposing um, these materials into the health impacts and how it like took like massive amounts of lawsuits um, for them to be fined, but even though like people were were dying and and suffering um, terribly from the the health impacts of the way that they were improperly disposing teflon byproducts and it it took like legal battles for them to even get any sort of monetary compensation that that's that's not an equal like an equal solution like you killed people and now you only have to pay like a little bit of a fine in comparison to how much money you're making off of teflon
1: products yeah jesus christ uh i like to call that as, as as a personal joke the aaron brockovich effect that people really believe that the justice served is uh money paid and i i it's just not a solution it's not and that that belief also just genuinely harms communities um i guess an example i have of that is uh Jeremy Davidson uh who's a 6-year-old he was 6-year-old 6 years old and he was killed there was a uh mountaintop removal mining I, I want to say the, country, the company of like A&M Energy, something of that or it's been a while since since I've been involved with this case, but um, they were using <laughs> improper safety techniques and a boulder rolled down a hill and crashed through his, his bedroom wall and killed him in his sleep. And it, it's cartoonishly tragic. But the example that came from that was that Davidson's father uh, worked for the energy company and... The family attempted to, you know, not only get a settlement, but genuinely change the practices of the energy company and try and lobby for um, more regulations to move mining locations further away from residential areas. But of course, because because the incident was so cartoonishly tragic, it ended up in a lot of national attention. And this movement arose from that event of the catalyst called Mountain Justice Summer and MJS. And the MJS movement ended up coming to um, the place in uh, Virginia where where Jeremy Davidson was killed and basically camping out. Just people from all over the country came, came, brought tents and camped out. And Appalachia is a culture that has a very, very strong value on insider circles versus outsiders, uh, which is completely understandable, understanding the ways that Appalachia has historically been taken advantage of. and that really the only way to, to ensure unfiltered community organizing, um, especially in the history of mining communities in which the company representatives would send, you know, company spies into into union organizing meetings, that the only people you can really trust are people you really know. And the Davidson family absolutely refused to engage with any of the activists of MJS and ended up receiving only a fraction of the settlement that they asked for because there were so many issues with the trial because activists kept interrupting meetings, messing with evidence just by trying to uh, enter the areas where A&M was mining. And just just the amount of outside interference ended up with such a mistrial that the Davidson family got almost nothing in terms of settlement and there was no actual tangible change changes made. And... That can be seen again in the other. Um, so the uh, other speaking about earlier, it's the um, scaling up of of environmental movements. That oftentimes more engagement isn't isn't necessarily better, but quality engagement is. Grassroots movements are. That's why I, I guess one of the reasons I use the term bingos, uh big NGOs, as opposed to smaller, more grassroots NGOs that are that are based in a community organizing. So I think yeah, that that idea of a Companies being able to able to get away with uh, you know absolute tragedies, just absolute tragedies, just because you know, the idea that money money being paid out is enough for a community. Where if you actually you know work in communities that are deeply affected by environmental degradation or you know the factors of the the, the impacts of climate change, what they want is concrete change and not money and The idea that money can be paid out from the outside looks like an acceptable solution, but in insider communities, it's not a solution, Uh, not in the long term. And it isn't even something that'll begin healing for those communities.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. It's a critical perspective on community organizing and and nonprofit work for sure. Well, I don't have any other questions. Um, Do you, Alex? No, not really. Uh, I feel like
3: this was really informative, especially as someone who doesn't have any background in conservation. I found it super interesting and I really like this perspective. I think it's an important voice and perspective to have in this area because you seldom do see those intersections of, you know, like leftism and conservation. So I really appreciate you coming on and. Basically, just giving us a really thorough rundown of so many aspects of it
1: well thank you, thank you, yeah, I really appreciate having you know the platform to talk about it um I found even in even in specifically in the sciences bringing <laughs> bringing critical theory to to what people view as like this untouchable scientific truth is is not always not always welcome, so being able to you know have the space with people to to blend those two things is, is always appreciated
3: oh yeah yeah i was gonna say we have talked about that so many times so yeah i really love that you've approached this specific area with that because we need to really deconstruct and critically analyze every aspect of what we consider natural knowledge and science
1: yeah absolutely and i think um not only natural knowledge, but the way we approach it and the way we can contribute contribute to it. Um, yeah, I guess I, if you don't have any questions for me, I, I want to ask, I guess, is there anything you want to do or any way you would want to get involved in conservation going forward? Uh, because, you know, a lot of the, the recommendations that people give for for conservation and the ways you can get involved, you know, Uh <laughs> Turn the water off when you brush your teeth, or turn the light off when you leave the room. Um, so, is there anything that that you personally feel like you would want to change, or anything else that you would want to read about or you know explore more?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, putting us on the spot. Um, I need to I need to be better at being involved with like more mass movement, more community focused movement. Um, It's been hard during the pandemic, especially as a sick person, but it's something that I I want to be more involved with. And I am, um, my partner and I have um, done a bunch of things to our house to make it like pollinator friendly. Like um, we're building pollinator gardens and we're going to grow our own veggies and collect gray water um, and just working in all of those ways. But they're individual and they will only impact us, really. So um, I definitely need to get more involved in um, community conservation practices, for sure.
1: Don't get me wrong when I say when I say we shouldn't be focusing only on individual actions. I do believe individual actions are very, very important. And I would always, always encourage them. Um, Sure, they might only impact you, but still still the disruption of, I guess, the expectation that we should rely on those larger systems and the there isn't just like a lot of public public education on things like how to collect gray water those aren't things you would learn I guess in a class and I very much would encourage people to you know do the work to look up exactly what can I do to I guess extract myself from from those systems in which things that I need can continue to subjugate other people or continue to degrade the environment. How can I do that in a more sustainable way? And even though sure it is an individual action, it's still still very, very important.
3: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, especially as someone who lives in Colorado, I feel like I should be doing more work to become educated on uh, how to become less reliant on these companies and stuff like that. And similar to Savannah, I would love to get more involved with uh, collective action. I'm, I'm actually thinking about like the university that I attend and um, work at, trying to push more of these efforts in our union. That would be really cool because there are so many ways that we could be better at our university because it's such a large institution. So yeah, thank you for challenging us to think about those things more.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess, yeah, I was part of my, my university's, um, I think it's if it we call it, it C, Students for Environmental Action. And all of the things we did was, it, it was, you know, things on an individual level that you can take to a larger level are always important. So asking our university to go paperless, um, as part of the IT department. So I had, I had the ability to, to start doing some of that work, um, uh, working with glass recycling, introducing composting. Um, if you are part of a larger community, like a university, um, commune, um, even if you have like an HOA, you can absolutely try and um bring individual individual actions to a larger scale. Uh, go ahead, put up flyers in your in your apartment building, um around your neighborhood, uh anything you want, even just saying, you know, um, you know, put out a feeder, this migratory species will be coming through your area soon. I think, yeah, doing the work to not only, you know, pay attention to public education, but be able to contribute to it is also a very, a very important part of that. Um, yeah, if you have a union, absolutely, absolutely. Talk to your union and, you know, do the work to to see what you can do in, in that community and to, what collective work you can do.
2: That's a great point, taking individual actions to um a larger scale is definitely something that i think many of us could could push for in in one way or another within like our neighborhood within um organizations or companies that we work for i think those are fairly tangible um for many of us so that's yeah it's a great thing to think on for sure yeah
3: yeah and did you have any you know Bigger, broad suggestions for us and our listeners for how we could get involved or um, be more mindful in this area, or even just some resources to educate ourselves. Did you have any specific recommendations that you wanted to share, or even any plugs for personal projects?
1: <laughs> personal projects. Ooh, I don't. I don't know if I have any in particular. I guess um, depending on where you live. Yeah, think about. I guess paying attention to not only national issues, but very, very local issues. And uh, I'm always I'm always a, a, a fierce supporter of direct action. You don't have to chain yourself to a pipeline. But um, uh, with the pipeline, there were tree sits that were happening. Uh, people who, who, you know, it's a very classic idea of you go sit in that tree. You make sure you do not come out of that tree. So even simple things like I, 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 uh, <laughs> I, I personally couldn't because you know I was a university student and I, I, I am not the right candidate for a tree sit. I have too many medical issues. Um, but just like little actions of support, bringing food to those doing tree sitting, you know, blankets, staying in contact, becoming a community contact for people who are doing that direct action. Um, any support you can lend to that is always, always appreciated. You know, find out who is doing that direct action. A lot of times talk to, if you are a homeowner, try and figure out if you can put your land in a trust. There are a lot of local uh, conservation agencies who will work with you to add regulations to the land that you're living on. um, Mm -hmm. So that if you do end up selling your land, if God forbid you die and your land gets assumed by the state, there are regulations as to what can happen to it, so you know if somebody else buys that land they can't they they they're barred from you know uh adding pollutants or you know monoculturing that land if you are lucky enough to have that privilege um or any ownership of land you can you personally can do the work to protect it but I think a lot of the work has to do with uh personal introspection and critique and trying to disrupt those patterns of thought in yourself that makes you feel good about any sort of consumption or makes you feel, you know, I guess, like you are assuming an identity through the act of consumption. It sounds harsh. It sounds terrible. But, you know, you are not more of an environmentalist for buying, you know, rainforest certified chocolate. You are not more of an environmentalist for, you know, recycling shoes. Is it probably a better option than anything else? Yeah, sure. Um, go buy thrifted clothes. Absolutely, um, the fast fashion industry and textile industries have an, an immense water footprint. But to think that those that action of consumption is enough is is a pattern of thought that that has to be disrupted within people and understanding that you know true activism um, would be would be the actual disruption of. Of those structures and you know direct action against <laughs> projects that, that that have the direct impact of environmental degradation. I guess yeah, it has to do with that personal introspection and I guess talking about talking about actions outside of consumption that you can do, like planting pollinating species is fantastic. Uh, you can use hummingbird feeders to support migratory bat species. There's there's so many things you can you can personally do and. I guess also not only that, but doing the work to understand disparities. And a lot of a lot of conservation also pushes, like you know, go out to your backyard and plant this. But in a lot of urban areas, it's not it's not something that's possible. And it feels like the only thing you can do is um try and you know be an activist through consumption. But there are definitely alternatives to that, and a lot of it (laughs) a lot of it's a lot more work than people know how to do. So reach out to you know local local organizations who will teach you how to, you know, try and get your apartment building to start composting or, you know, force force your landlords or whoever your property owners are to start start a recycling program in your building. Um I guess really it's it's figuring out how to do the work of organizing. And that's again, that's that's a whole other episode. Um but yeah, I guess uh, moving away from consumption as 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 a as a method of activism is really really in my mind the most important part and even even conservation scientists really really fall victim to that, you know. You can go to the conventions and talk to them, you know, they're all wearing like Chacos and, and whatever. But uh it really, really takes a lot of, you know, application of theory and and critical thought about subjective science and that that, that, that dynamic outside of just, you know, reading the literature, having the knowledge. That 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 will lead to, I guess, in my mind, uh, successful successful conservation.
2: Thank you, Jules, for going over um, different aspects of conservation and how we as individuals and larger communities, larger movements, can have an impact on environmentalism and conservation. I think we all have a lot to think about, a lot of introspection to do. So. I guess, uh, for every, for all of our listeners, um, be active, don't identify with consumption, force your landlords to do shit, <laughs> um, and, and disrupt. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks everyone for listening, um, to tonight's episode. Um, thank you again, Jules, for coming on and solidarity forever.
4: Solidarity forever. Bye. 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 It's only four degrees, it's only four degrees. It's only four degrees, it's only four degrees.